here. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 21 uh, this morning, starting um, at verse 9. Now, if you were here last week, if you weren't, go listen to the sermon. But um, last week we saw and heard of an incredible and a beautiful vision of the new heavens, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, This week, we're going to see another vision, if you will, of the same thing. Two weeks ago, I I talked about like the Super Bowl control room, and you have all these different screens. In a sense, what we're seeing this morning is we're seeing the same thing, but we're seeing yet another vantage point of it as we dive in uh, to verse 9 and seeing it from a different perspective. So let's dive in now um, to God's Word. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, And spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth burl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopaz, the eleventh jacinth, the the twelfth amethyst. I can't even speak this morning. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the land. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kind of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. 
But Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Would it come alive before us? Would you help us to behold the wonderful glory that awaits? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we heard of the new heaven and new earth last week, I couldn't help uh, but think of Narnia and how Narnia, if if you've read the books, how it comes to a close. At the very end, Narnia is about to be destroyed and Aslan leads some into a stable, fittingly. And they go through the door and they go deeper and deeper into the stable, much like they went um, into a wardrobe previously. And suddenly, they find themselves in a new land. And Lucy looks and she says, those hills... The nice woody ones and the blue ones beyond, aren't they very much like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass in Arkenland and everything. And yet, said Lucy, they're very different. They have more colors on them, and they look farther away than I remembered, and they're, they're more, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling when he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little bit like this. Now, with in mind what we heard last week, and then we read what we just read a moment ago, There might almost for a moment, and maybe it's just me, probably is, a moment of letdown. And there shouldn't be. Hopefully we'll see that this morning. But last week we heard about how tangible this new earth would be, how real and physical it would be, just like the the physical earth we can see outside the, the window now. Yes, renewed in a way, but the same, the very same earth Peter mentioned a tree planted uh, before Christ returns would still be there in in the new creation. That's kind of how real it is. In fact, when you go out there right now and you scoop up a handful of dirt, that would be the dirt that you would walk on in the new heaven and earth. And if you'll remember, um, Peter also mentioned, we have this kind of thought that this place that we're going um, that everything is going to be gold there, right? And then we read the passage that I just read, where we read that everything is gold. The city is gold. The city was pure gold. The streets of the city were pure gold. The gates are made of single pearls, right? And there's, there's all of these different jewels all over the place. What's going on? Was Peter wrong? That would make for an uncomfortable moment here this morning, Right? Is this really a picture, the city adorned with jewels and and all gold? Is this really what the new heaven and the new earth will look like? I'm afraid if we don't read carefully, we might begin to think so. Let's think through this real quick. Look back at verse 2 that we saw last week. What did John see? He said, "I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see what we see there? We see this new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that's being talked about in our passage, but do you know some, notice something about it? This new Jerusalem is not, it, it, it's not a what? It's, it's not like a place. The new Jerusalem here is described as what? It's a who, it's a, it's a person. It's, the new Jerusalem here is who? But the bride 
in our passage. In verse 9, what do we see? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, we see this new Jerusalem, right? And again, the new Jerusalem is not a what? It's not a place. It's a who, isn't it? The bride, the wife of the lamb. Maybe you've read through Revelation 21 many times. Maybe you're now just seeing it. Maybe you've seen it before. But this new Jerusalem that's being described here, it's not where the saints live. This new Jerusalem that we see this morning, it is the saints. What's being described here are the, the, the people of God. Those, you and I, who, who are in Christ, that, this is a picture of Christ's church, of God's people. And it's meant to be a contrast to what we saw a few chapters ago, right, where we saw Babylon and Babylon's prostitute. And here we see Jesus, if you will, and his, his bride. His bride looks far different than that prostitute, doesn't he? Doesn't she? So what's going on here? I think what we're meant to see in this new Jerusalem, it's a picture for us, a picture of of the eternal communion that we will have with God on the new heaven and new earth. That is God's eternal presence with his people is the picture that's trying to be drawn for us. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to run through, and I promise you we'll be relatively quick. Um, through five kind of main things that I want us to see and, and pull out of this as we move through this morning. Not, not, certainly not exhaustive of this passage. But what I want us to see is that because God is present with his people in the new heaven and earth, that we're secure, that we're holy, that we're beautiful, that we're glorious, and that we're new. Just look at the this picture of of this new Jerusalem. Verse 12, we see a great high wall. And and then in verse 16, we start noticing the the dimensions of the city, 12,000 stadia, wide, high. 12,000 stadia, you might have it in your footnote there, about 1,500 miles. So the city stretches 1,500 miles high. To give you a little bit of comparison, right now the, the International Space Station is about 250 miles above the earth, okay? This city is, is huge, right? It's tremendous. And, and as we see the size of this city, we, we should understand the security that comes with it. In the city, it has a, a, uh, um, it has a wall around it, right? 144 cubits. Now, this for a moment seems like a letdown because 144 cubits is only like 216 feet. That's still a pretty impressive wall. But in comparison with with the size of the city, it seems almost out of place. But that's where we need to be reminded of what these numbers in Revelation mean and the picture that we're seeing here. Do do you see verse 17? You see how these 144 cubits are described? By human measurement, they're 144 cubits, which is also an angel's measurement. That seems awfully strange, doesn't it? John, and see, this is where we're reminded that John is given a picture that he can see, that he can understand, that computes with the real world, where you can pull out a a ruler and actually measure things. But he's being reminded, we're being reminded, 
that if that's where you stick with this, this huge city that goes up way, way, way above the International Space Station, we're missing something, we'll fail to understand the angelic measurement, if you will. The angelic meaning, the, the, the heavenly meaning, if you will. Be reminded of these numbers. We, all these numbers like before us, they're all like multiples of 12, aren't they? They're 12, 12 times 1,000. They're actually 12, or, or they're 12 times 12. We mentioned, what, what is that number 12? What does it remind us of? It reminds us, uh, of course, of the tribes. It reminds us of the apostles. It's meant to remind us of God's people. And why is it used over and over here? It's remind us, to remind us that this city represents the complete people of God. Every last one of them. All that are Christ's. Now, there's some helpful, um, it'll help us to understand what actually takes place here. Look at verse 15. The angel, what, what is he called to do? He's, he's called to take his measuring rod of gold and to measure the city, its walls, and its gates. Literally, he's called to be like a surveyor, if you will, going and measuring everything out. And what does a surveyor do if you call him out to your property? He measures where the property lines are, right? And you know what, exactly what's yours. Um, we, we see this measure, and we saw it earlier in Revelation. You may remember Revelation chapter 11. We see this measuring in the book of Ezekiel. And in all those places, this measuring is meant to be a promise of God's presence with his people. Okay? It's measuring out this area that God is present with his people. And if he is present with his people, what does that mean? He's going to protect his people, right? He's going to keep them secure. Now, if you remember back in Revelation 11, John was told to measure the temple. But he was, not told, to, he was told not to measure at all. He was told not to measure the outer court. And then we said that was because God's people, this measuring was to show that God's people would be protected ultimately, but didn't measure that outer court because God's people were going to experience tribulation in that outer court. Now, at the end, what does John see? John sees a day when the whole city will be measured. All of it will be measured. All of Jesus' people will be perfectly and completely protected. Verse 25, we see that the gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. In their world, you know, we don't have gates around our cities anymore. In, in their day, the, the gates were there for a reason, to keep people out. And in particular, at night, the gates of the city would be closed so that people could sleep in peace. We see here a fulfillment of Isaiah 60. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. What is it, a picture of God's people totally protected? The gates can stay wide open and there's no need to worry because his people are perfectly protected in its bounds. In verse 12, we saw the, the angels placed at the gates. Should remind us of other, another angel placed at a gate, Garden of Eden, at the east entrance. Here we have angels placed at each one of these gates to guard, to protect. The picture being, of course, that God's people are totally protected. They're invulnerable. Now, let's not miss what these walls, this measuring, these gates, they, they, they really point to. Verse 25 said what? That there will be no night. There'll be no night. Don't get distracted by the, the, the thought of like, okay, we're not going to have the rhythms of night and day. The fact that there is no night 
is meant to point us to the fact that God will always be present with his people. He's there, he's with them, that's the picture. And if God is always present with his people, then what? You're completely secure. You don't even need to contemplate some sort of repeat of Genesis 3. You don't have to worry about the the serpent coming in. You're invulnerable. You're protected. The troubles of this world will trouble you no longer. And think of this. Can you imagine this day? Do you ever ask yourself, am I really one of his? Is there any way that he can really accept me? John here is given a picture, a vision of total acceptance, total security for those that are in Christ. A place where, and a time, can you imagine a place and time where there will be zero doubt of your standing with regards to God? Because you'll be present with him. No doubting ever again. And this naturally leads us to our our second point. That is, how can we be so secure? We can be so secure because we're holy. Verse 16, the city lies four square. Its length, the the same as its width. And he he measured the city with its rod, 20,000 stadia, that huge measurement. And its length and its width and its height are all equal. Now, without going to geometry class, what do we have here? A cube, right? And not just any cube. We've seen that it's all gold, right? We have a golden cube. Where else do we see such a thing in Scripture? 1 Kings 6.20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. What is that? What is that inner, inner sanctuary? It's the Holy of Holies. In Solomon's temple is what we're being told about here. That Holy of Holies, that place that the high priest could only go once a year, right? On the Day of Atonement, that inner sanctum, the place where where the Ark of the Covenant rested, the place where God's special presence existed amongst his people. You know, his people camped out, if you will, all around him. But he was especially present there in that Holy of Holies. And now John sees something incredible that the people of God, God's people, are the holy of holies. That's the picture that he's seen. There is no outer court or inner court, right? All there is is the holy of holies. And John sees that the saints, we are that holy of holies. In verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, what, is, what should we be reminded of when we think of the Holy of Holies? I think it, there's a multitude of things, but one of the things, it represents God's holiness, right? And his justice, how he is set apart. Why, why, why do all these things need to go into who can approach and when and all those things? Because God is holy and what can he not be around? But those that are not. And it was a constant reminder to the people of how holy their God is. And yet, Let's not forget, it was also a place that should have reminded them of the incredible mercy, grace, and love of their great God. You see, they, they had sacrifices throughout the year, constantly, right? But once a year, once a year, the high priest 
would go in on the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle that blood on that, that, on that seat, right? We, we, we've, maybe you've seen or heard that picture before. He goes in there making that Day of Atonement sacrifice. And the people are reminded that for true forgiveness, for, for true perfect purification, what, it must be done in the very presence of God. And once a year, that was allowed as a reminder that their holy God brought to them forgiveness. Hebrews talks about that ultimate day of atonement, the day that all those days of atonement, all those times the chief priests went in. We read this, that he, Jesus Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. The great high priest went in. And because Jesus has done this, we, we read in Hebrews 10 that we can have confidence to enter the holy, blade, holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain as he tore the veil in two and walked through. And now, with this new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21, we have a picture of the ultimate fruition of, of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And it's this, that the people of God are forever able to be in his presence, in the presence of a holy God. Once, we could never get close to him. Now, on that day, you'll reside with him because we, the church, the people of God, will be holy. Do you understand the ramifications of that? That you, that you will be utterly, completely, and perfectly holy. Can you even imagine such a thing? utter, complete, perfect inability to sin. Can you imagine? Imagine going through a whole day without coveting. Going through a whole day without being tempted by your sinful desires, not even once. You'll be utterly, completely, and perfectly holy and therefore able to be with him because of the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we have been made holy. While it may be hard to imagine, do you long for that? Do you long to be holy as he is holy? Do you long for that day when sin will be gone, death will be no more, sadness and the tears that we, all of it will be gone. Reminded of C.S. Lewis's words. We find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. This picture of the new Jerusalem reminds us that because we're present with God, be holy, be secure, and 
It'd be beautiful. Did you get that picture? Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And no, I'm not going to read them again. I already stumbled over them once. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Gold, pearls, jewels. The description of God's people. With all of these beautiful, beautiful adornments. And those 12 stones, that we might struggle through the names of some of them, they also point us to the incredible beauty. Um, you may not remember this, but the, the, the high priest, we, we talked about the Day of Atonement, right? That the high priest, whenever he would go into the Holy of Holies, one of the things that he would wear, he would wear a breastplate. And on it were what? You shouldn't be surprised here, 12 jewels, right? 12 precious stones. We read about it in Exodus 28. So Aaron, the high priest, shall bear the names of the son of Israel via these these gems. In the breastplate of judgment, he shall bear them where? On his heart. And when he goes into that holy place, that holy of holies, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Now, as we mentioned before, our high priest, Jesus, has already entered into the holy of holies for us. And he has perfectly kept our names on his heart. He has, he has gone in, securing for us redemption. A perfect high priest. And as a result, as a result of what our high priest has done for us, we're beautiful. We haven't made ourselves beautiful. He has made us that. Imagine, looking in a mirror and being perfectly satisfied with all that you see. Never wishing for something to be different. Can you imagine that day? And understand, and this is important, we need to understand why we will be so beautiful. We will be so beautiful because we're so beautiful in his sight. Because the groom looks upon his bride and he sees her beauty. And that's the ultimate reason why we'll be beautiful. It's why we'll look in a mirror and see ourselves as beautiful or handsome, I guess, if you'd prefer that. Or it's the reason why we'll see each other as beautiful without any tinge of jealousy at all. And we will be beautiful ultimately because we will be reflecting the beauty of our glorious Savior. Where does our beauty come from? Our beauty comes from reflecting his glory, which of course brings us to the fourth point. It will be glorious. Verse 11 Where does this glory come from? Just read. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The glory of God 
the city will have. And then in verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. What's the description here? That all these materials that we read about, all the adornments of the new Jerusalem, they're meant to point us to how perfectly we will radiate his glory. that will radiate ultimately his beauty, his glory. And and don't forget, as God's people, we're we're certainly called to radiate that glory now. Don't miss that, please. We read it in 1 Peter, but but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, talking about us, talking about the church, talking about God's people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Now, of course, we don't always perfectly radiate that glory. As you go into this week, you're going to struggle to do so, won't you? And you'll find yourself not always radiating it. Yet the promise is on that last day. You will perfectly radiate his glory. Perfectly. And what's interesting here, and I don't know if you caught it, but yes, we reflect his glory, but then there's this other weird thing in verse 24. Let me read it. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does that mean? I think it's likely, Peter kind of talked about it a little bit last week. I won't go into it in depth, but the picture here seems to be the way in which we bring our lesser glories, if you will, and certainly cleansed into the new heaven and new earth. That we will bring contributions from this world, if you will, into glory, into that new heaven and new earth. What will that be? I don't know. Will it be art and music, technology? Who knows what all of those wonderful things that, that we have created because we are created in the image of a creator? And how many of those things will be brought in to that new creation? Now, you may also be thinking, well, who are these kings? You're reminded of what John saw in chapter 5. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you are slain by your blood. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, and you what? And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign these kings that bring in their glory, these lesser glories, that's you and I. Don't miss it. We will be the kings and the queens, if you will. I mean, and really, this is a picture that goes all the way back to the garden. What were Adam and Eve called to do in Genesis 1? They were called to have dominion. They were called to a royal office, to have dominion over creation as they, they were called to spread out the garden, right? Now, This kind of dominion isn't about us. It's not about our glory. It's about his. When Adam and Eve were called to have dominion, they they were called to have dominion as vice royalty, okay? As as those who had a greater king than you and I. In that new heavens, new earth, yes, we will be kings and queens, if you will, but, but what? It won't be about us. It won't be us seeking after our own glory. 
will be to serve the glory of the great king. Now we have one last point. At the very end, in, in the beginning of chapter 22, it's almost, we, we, we kind of shift. If we go back to that control room, it's like we're, we're going to another vantage point and seeing this again from a, another vantage point. But we're still looking at the city. Look at these first two verses. Then the angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Here we see that now this city, which was a golden cube, right, with all these emeralds and stuff. Now what does it look like? Now this city looks like a garden. Now we hear garden. Of course, our minds should naturally go back to how everything began um, in the garden, right? It's a reminder to us of how things originally started and God's original call on, on, on his image bearers to do what? To spread to the very ends of the earth with that hope, with that longing for that day that he would do what? that he would set up his ultimate throne here on the earth, bringing heaven and earth together. The very picture that we saw at the beginning of, of chapter 21 is what was longed for even back in that day in the garden where it seemed so small. It's like, where is this going? That's where it was going. As Adam and Eve were called to spread the bounds of that garden to the ends of the earth. But of course, we know sin entered into the picture, Right? And Adam and Eve, they got cast out of the garden. So it's very fitting that the, that the vision that John is, is given is here is that of a picture now of, of God residing with his people in the garden. Remember, as a result of sin, Adam and Eve were, were banished from the garden. And why, why was one of the reasons why they were kept out of the garden? To keep them from getting to what? That tree of life. To keep them being able to eat the fruit. And yet now, what do we see in this picture? We see a river and we see a tree. And this, this river reminds us of our Savior's own words in John, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Because we're in Christ in that new day, on that, that, that new Jerusalem. The picture is of, of this new Jerusalem, what's flowing through her veins, but living water. We will be able to drink from it. And there'll be the tree, the tree of life, the, the, the tree that once sinners were kept away from. Now God's saints are welcome to come and drink from the river, to eat from the fruit of the tree. Because as we read in verse 3, what? The curse is gone. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In verse 27, we'd read, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. This newness of this place, uh, this newness of this place that's free from the curse a garden where no sin exists and God welcomes you to come and drink and eat. And let's not forget why we will be free of the curse. 
In Galatians 3, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's because he was cursed on a tree all of these incredible things that we've, we've read about, that, that we have security, that we're, we're called holy and beautiful and glorious, that we have this new newness about us in our resurrected body. All of this is true because our Savior Jesus took the curse on himself. And in this new place, in this new garden, sin will never enter in again. I'm reminded we, we started with Narnia, so it's appropriate that we end there too, I guess. Um, I'll spoil the book for you. These are the last words. And he, Aslan, the lion, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so beautiful, were so great, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one. Chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. As we read Revelation 21, as we read Revelation 22, and we see this incredible picture. It's like, how do you put this into words? Well, you, it's like we can't. We, we just kind of see little bits and pieces of the wonder of it, the, the wonder of the kind of security that we'd have, the holiness, the, the, the beauty, the gloriousness, the newness, the, the things that we've spoken of this morning. We can't even really begin to even write them down. The wonder that is ahead of us. And all of this, let, let's never, we get so consumed with these 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever it is, years. And we miss the grand scape of eternity. As C.S. Lewis says, it's what we have right now, it's just the, the title page, it's the cover page, if you, if you will. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. And each chapter will be better than the one before. As Lewis said, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. It's hard, it's, on, it's near impossible to put into words the wonder, the glory that awaits that place where we will be made new, where we will be free, free to worship him unhindered. And as we read in verse 4, there we will see his face. 
we will behold his face. The face of our great God. The one whom you always had to hide from, right? And, and Moses had to be hid behind a rock so he didn't, didn't see his face. Yet we will behold his face. It will be glorious. Do you long for that day? And you will be secure and holy, glorious, and made new. Ultimately, because you'll be with him, beholding his face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that are before us in your word. to try to help us to see the wonder and the glory that awaits. We struggle, I struggle, I've struggled this morning to even put it into words. But Father, we certainly have a calling now, here. Oh Father, but would you help us, help to also grow in us a longing to be with you a desire to live out here on earth as long as you would have us, desiring to serve you in whatever way you would have us serve you, but longing for that day where we will see your face in our resurrected and glorified bodies. Oh, Father, we long for that day. We pray this all. In the matchless name.